0: Welcome to High Theory. Today, we are talking about the hyperlocal with Nicholas Burns. Nicholas, would you mind introducing yourself? I am Nicholas Burns.
1: I teach at NYU at the School of Continuing and Professional Studies. I have published on many aspects of theory and literary history. I published in 2010, Theory After Theory, an intellectual history of literary theory from 1950 to the early 21st century from Broadview, which is widely used as a a textbook in intro theory classes. And uh, I have done a lot of work on Australian literature and on Latin American literature and world literature in general. And in 2019, I published a book with Lexington called The Hyperlocal in
0: 18th and 19th Century Literary Space. Brilliant. And, you know, that's the book that we are going to talk about mainly today. But thank you so much, Nicholas, for coming to High Theory and talking to us. Thank you. What the heck is the hyperlocal? The
1: hyperlocal, that term originated in journalism in the early 1990s to designate news that was tethered to a very local area. So not just a city or a state but a county, a town that was very specific. And the interesting thing about that is the more specific it got in the orientation of place, the more generic in content it became. And so you could look at hyperlocal news from a Chicago area suburb, from a Boston area suburb, from a Seattle area suburb. And they were kind of saying the same thing. And so the hyperlocal appealed to me as a concept that was very place specific, but did not actually say that any specific place had concrete organic content. So there is no room in the hyperlocal for nationalism, for essentialism, for anything organic. is transferable and elastic while also remaining very place-specific and not simply a subset of the universal. So the hyperlocal is ramifying the regional and taking out that primordial essentialism without simply becoming a subset of the universal.
0: So you're talking about the origins of the hyperlocal as... Of modality in journalism, and I'm wondering how you read its relationship to kind of other broad movements in American journalism, uh, new journalism, and you know, other kinds of investigative narrative journalism.
1: I think it is an aspect of in the 1960s, there were the New York Times, there were the three networks, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, Walter Cronkite spoke with the word of God and the transparency of journalism was unquestioned now there are a million there are a million plateau as deleuze and guattari would say there are a million sources of of news and the idea of objective journalism or journalism that is simply reportage is been problematized and even though hyperlocal news is hardly performative in its iteration of the truth. I think it is part of that divergence from the one Promethean Walter Cronkite-esque norm of reportage that American journalism had in the late 1960s.
0: How do we use the hyperlocal? I'm really kind of hoping to get into the methodology in your book. Sure. Uh, The hyperlocal particularly appealed to
1: me as a way of talking about the 18th and early 19th centuries. And despite the title, which I think the subtitle was the publishers, uh, my book does not go much further than 1850. The last significant text, uh, latest significant text in it is uh, Emerson's poem, Monadnock, which is uh, in the mid 1840s and Dickens' novel, Barnaby Rudge, also the early to mid 1840s. But it appealed to me as a way of talking about Middle modernity. So if you, what we used to call the Renaissance, scholars like to talk about the early modern now, the time of Shakespeare and Montaigne and so on. And if we think about the 20th century as the late modern, as something equivalent to late capitalism, the 18th and early 19th centuries are a kind of middle modernity. And of course, they are a time which, where we see the emergence of capitalism. And what struck me, I often teach Daniel Defoe's novel, Roxana. I do a two-semester survey of the 18th and 19th century British novels. Uh, I start Mm. with Defoe. Uh, I can't do Robinson Crusoe because the courses on empire and colonialism have rightly acclaimed that book. So I do Defoe's Roxanna instead, although maybe after the pandemic I'll do Journal of the Plague here. But Mm. Roxanna has this wonderful line in it. Sir Robert Clayton, who's a real-life figure, gives this advice to Roxanna, who's kind of an entrepreneurial sex worker. And Mm -hmm. he tells her, an estate is a pond, but a trade is a spring. And so an estate like a pond is there, but it doesn't produce value. A trade is like a spring. It is ever resourceful. And that is a paradigmatic of capitalism and its ability to proliferate and reproduce itself. And I thought, well, what about the estate is a pond part of that simile? And what about residual forms in the age of capitalism? And Mm -hmm. so the second chapter of the book is the pond, is on the uh, pond as a trope in uh, 18th and 19th century literature. And I look at ponds and how they are opposed to lakes in particularly the 18th century novel, but also in poetry. And lakes, of course, the lake poets, Wordsworth, they are objects of desire. They are objects of the touristic gaze. Ponds are either very functional. They're used to farm carp, or they are very decorative. They're used to adorn aristocrats' estate. And in that way, they are beneath notice and beneath the capitalist gaze. And in a weird way, somewhat subversive of the capitalist game. So that was the core, that was the Doné. And then I branched out the uh, chapter that precedes it is on science and on the scientific particle. And the uh, scientific particle as theorized by uh, the people coming out of the Royal Society in the late 17th century is something, it is very specific, it is a particle. It is not a universal. But it obviously doesn't have a place. It doesn't have organic identity. And so it is like the pond in being very specific, but again, not essential and not at all the object of desire. So from there, I'm not going to go through the entire book uh, piece by piece, but it ramifies from there and goes out into various movements, including high romanticism, and ends up in the uh, 1840s with... uh, Dickens and Emerson, and the early Anglo-Indian poet Henry Derozio, who worked in Calcutta in the early 19th century. And those are the concluding pictures of the book.
0: Let me take you to the other end of the spectrum, because mm-hmm. we, that's a fascinating examination of the Pondas trope. trope. But I'm wondering, you've worked so extensively in Australian literature, mm-hmm. and what exactly is the overlap between your interest in the hyperlocal and mm-hmm. your interest in Australia as a place and as a trope in literary Well, one of
1: the things that occurs in the 18th century is what David Fawcett, F-A-U-S-E-T-T, who's a very interesting scholar of kind of French utopian literature in the 18th century. He called the closing of the global circle. In other words, when Every part of the globe was discovered by Europeans. Of course, the indigenous peoples of Australia, as Bruce Pascoe has recently argued, knew very well uh, where they were and their own country. But the discovery of the entire globe within the European gaze. Enabled ideas of the global, but they also enabled an idea of transferability and elasticity and that an individual signifier could play in many places, and so in the pond chapter, for instance, I look at the uh, the idea of the black swan which is a bird that is very specific to Australia. And when black swans begin to appear in palms about ponds, that indicates the intrusion of Australian fauna into the rest of the world. So with regard to Australia, I'm not Australian. I am not related to any Australians. I have no organic connection to Australia at all. I became interested in in, it when I was in my early 20s at Columbia University. I have since been to Australia many times, but I'm interested in Australia
0: as a kind of limit situation of the global. That's a fascinating bridging between the tropic intensity of the pond as this kind of Closed up small figure and Australia as the Antipodes and uh, yes, like the world. Absolutely. Sp- yeah. Speaking of the world, my last question how will the hyperlocal save the world? <sighs> you know, I was very aware
1: that I was both descri- describing and advocating for the hyperlocal in my book. And I was a bit uncomfortable with that because the entire point of the hyperlocal is it's supposed to be around advocacy. But I do think, I started to think of the book in uh, 2014, so before Brexit, before Trump, and so on. But the, the straw man, the opponent of the hyperlocal, I, I call the subsidiary, and right. that is a term taken from EU discourse where subsidiarity is the right of the polities into the in the EU to describe things to decide things locally if they so wish. And the subsidiary is the opponent of the hyperlocal because it is that traditional, organic, regional, largely right-wing, local color-y thing. And so in the wake of Brexit and Trump and the rise of white right-wing nationalism, the hyperlocal began to stand in my mind for something that is liberating because it is transferable and because we aren't fixed to it. I don't want to claim for it, it, it is salvific. Because, of course, the hyperlocal, as I just mentioned, is contingent on a globality which proceeds from imperialism and European colonialism and so on. But I do think the transferability of the hyperlocal can help, resistance, and liberation, and I have a chapter in the middle of the book on Methodism and on the uh, Methodist uh, uh, movement in the late 18th century, and I talk about how African diaspora Methodist preachers uh, took a very English European discourse and transferred it by hyperlocal means to serve African diaspora populations in Canada and in Sierra Leone and worldwide. So, I don't think it will save the world, but I think it can liberate and it can just us from an idea of the regional that even if at times it situationally seems to help the left wing, I think always rhetorically bolsters that rhetoric of organic belonging that the right has used so
0: exploitatively in the past uh, seven or eight years. Well, you know, even if it's not salvific, it's, let's say, Emancipated in contingency. Yes. Thank you. That
1: is very much what I am trying for, is that emancipatory quality.
0: Uh, You put it very well. No, thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, coming to High Theory and talking about the hyperlocal. Nicholas, Thank thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Good to talk to you. And thank you for listening to High Theory.